I don't know how it is for those of you who uh, teach or communicate to a group of people, but sometimes when you prepare, you don't do it. This is not true for my Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> sometimes when you don't prepare, it's actually better than if you do prepare. And when Paulette asked me a few months ago if I would share my story, I thought about, I'm going to type it all out. I'm going to have it color-coded like I do my sermon. And then I thought about who's in this class. And uh, I thought, I don't think I need to do that with this group. So what I would like to do um, is just tell you how I think about my story. Um, memory is a tricky thing, right? I, I have a twin brother. We grew up in two different families, apparently, because we remember things very differently. Uh, so I'm going to tell you my story growing up. Um, I, I truly mean this. I don't think there's anything special about my story. I don't think there's anything unique. I think there's people in this room who've, who've had way more interesting lives than I've had. Um, but I do think it's sacred when we share our stories with each other because my story is the only story I've got. Now, I've got God's story, but how my story fits in that. And one of the things I love about this church is that many of you I know different parts of your story. Um, some of you I know a lot of your story. Some of you I only know a little bit of your story. Um, and then I want to leave time for just questions or follow-up or, hey, Josh, just one time you and I've always wondered. Like, I just I want to have an open conversation. And I, I think I'm to a point in my life where, well, I'll, where I will answer everything as honestly as I can. Um, something magical happened when I turned 40. I stopped caring what everybody thought. Did any of you experience that? I know it gets better when you get older, but you really don't care what people think. Yeah. I know that I know that from some of you. You really don't care what anybody But I'm serious. There's a first half of life, second half of life thing. And I never care about birthdays. I'm not sentimental. I don't like get a but when I turned 40, something weird happened. Like, it was a very tangible... Richard Rohr talks about it as uh, the first mountain you climb. David Brooks wrote a book about this, too. The first mountain you climb, your first 40 years, is different than the second mountain you climb. Um, and he, you know, he paints in generalities, but he basically says, the first mountain is, what's my place in the world? How do I fit? What's mine to do? What's my calling? That's the first mountain. The second mountain is, how do I take care of all my people? How do I live the last 40 years of my life so that my children, my grandchildren, my friends can all flourish? So the second half of life is much more about your community. Was first half of life, you're trying to establish your place. And I felt that when I turned 40. And one of the great things about turning 40 then is I just stopped caring as much. I still care a little bit what people think, but not like I did when I was 26, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and tell, uh, tell the truth as best as I can. Especially that now that William's here, I'm definitely, definitely going to tell the truth. Welcome. Good to see you, Steve. So I grew up, um, I was born right outside of Detroit, Michigan, in a little place called Warren. It's basically, Warren was built by Ford and GM and Chrysler. They've got huge car manufacturing plants. It's my grandfather used to call it Hillbilly Highway because all of the poor and black white people who moved from Alabama and Tennessee had to come up Interstate 75. That's why they called it Hillbilly Highway. And so Warren was this very kind of blue-collar, lower, middle-class, middle-class, working-class part of Detroit um, that very much 
kind of shaped how I see the world, probably good and bad. Um, on my dad's side of the family, so my paternal side of the family, they're all from Coleman, Alabama, two hours south of here. And I spent most of my summers, at least four weeks, with my grandparents in Coleman. When they retired, they moved back to Alabama. And uh, I found out what a hot summer was when I moved from Detroit to Coleman, Alabama. I had no idea what humidity was. Um, but um, for good or bad, I never identified with my mother's side of the family. I'm just going to be really transparent because that has caused pain in my family. Um, my mother's side of the family, they're... There's a lot of beauty there, but it's riddled by addiction, divorce, a lot of just family drama that my parents protected us from. But then when I went to college and started to realize, like, wow, it's that side of the family is a lot like Jerry Springer. Like, who's related to who? And who's got kids from this person? I mean, it's just a very complicated, messy family tree. And I think probably as a seven, eight-year-old boy, I probably intuitively didn't feel safe on that side of the family. Um, and, you know, it's so hard when you talk, because I, I still want to be respectful, yeah. but I also want to tell the truth. So the truth is, um, I didn't like being around my grandparents on that. So it's even hard to say. Because their house smelled like ashtrays, and um, it didn't feel safe. My grandfather on that side of the family have been an alcoholic, but he never did the 12 steps. He just stopped drinking, which some of you may know. There's only thing worse than a drunk is a dry drunk, because at least a drunk has like a few good days. <laughs> a dry drunk's just mad all the time. And that's sometimes how you can tell someone who stopped drinking or stopped doing drugs, but they never actually did the recovery, if they're just angry all the time, like they have no good days. And that was my grandfather. We, I never felt safe on that side of the family. I didn't like going to their house. Um, I know he tried through his brokenness, but um, I always felt way safer, welcomed, more joy on my dad's side of the family. And so I just gravitated. It even created um, friction in my family with sleepovers because I refused to do sleepovers with that side of the family. And as a 10-year-old boy, you don't have the language to talk about that. I just knew I didn't want to be there. Whereas if I stayed with my grandparents on my dad's side, it meant Detroit Tigers baseball games. It meant Little Caesars pizza. It meant watching 60 Minutes on Sunday night after the last NFL game. If you guys remember, 60 Minutes is still one of my favorite. It, it meant root beer, uh, root beer, ice, uh, ice cream floats. It meant... Taking the longest bubble bath I wanted to, and my grandmother would never sing. So I'm giving you these contrasting images because it really, and I've done a pretty good amount of counseling, so I've talked about this with my counselor, but it really gave me two different ways to think about family. One was safe, joy, accepted, church all the time. <laughs> the other was no church, brokenness, um, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, ashtrays, the smell of cigarettes, which to this day, I've never had in any interest in smoking a cigarette because of that. I'm not judging anybody who does. I'm just telling you my experience. Um, 
going to that side of the family's house at Christmas and getting there thinking, how long till we can leave? And then going to my other grandparents and thinking, how do I get rid of my parents? I want to live with these people. <laughs> like even thinking, like, what would it take for my grandparents to adopt me, right? But, so just two very different depictions. Now, if you, if you hear what I'm saying in that, I've never hated church like some people do. That's good. I've never felt betrayed by the church. I've never felt mistreated by the church. And I've, I've talked about this in some sermons, but when, when people come to me with story, true, awful stories of church abuse, I feel so inadequate because that wasn't my experience. My experience was, I love being with these people. I look forward to it. I'm accepted. They tell stories. They laugh. Yeah, they believe some weird stuff about dancing and <laughs> Coors Light and whatever, but I can look past those things. Like, these are good people. Like, these, these people affirm me. Um, so, very early on, um, I had a very healthy view of church generally and the Church of Christ specifically. Because that side of the family that I felt drawn to was like six generations Church of Christ. And I mean like Church of Christ, Church of Christ. Like we're all in. Um, we're not Baptists. We don't need a guitar, as my grandfather would say. It's not a guitar, it's a guitar. Um, we don't need all those tricks, you know. <laughs> we just, just voices on. Like I, I never had a negative view of that. Those are my people. That's where I felt accepted. Um, part two to that is... My dad, who I'm very close to, he worked as a respiratory therapist when we, before I was born. And then he felt called into ministry. And he went to this little Bible college in West Virginia, and he roomed with a guy named Keith Lancaster. You may have heard of this. Wow. Which is so funny, because if I tell that story at Lipscomb, they're like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> but you guys are like, acapella. Right? In fact, I just ran into Keith and Sharon at Blaze Pizza, of all places. And we had some great... Uh, this he, he knew my parents before I was born, but we traded some great stories. And so my dad goes to Bible college and just becomes uh, a great student of Scripture and a great storyteller. And so... Two contrasting families. I want you to picture this in your head. Church of Christ side is like the kingdom of heaven. My mom's side is just, it's complicated, right? It's just, it's Old Testament, New Testament, I guess is one way, one way to think about it. Uh, I, would, I would be hurting so many feelings if, if the, that side of the family was here. But it's, this is my story to tell. My dad going into ministry was great for us because it meant we got to be at church more. We thought it was awesome. Praise God. Uh, we, ne we never felt like we had to be somebody. We never felt like we had to. We, just, we didn't feel that way. Um, my dad decided when I was two, by the way, I'm a twin. My twin brother's name is Jason. We're fraternal twins. We don't even look like brothers, but we are definitely twins. Um, I have an older sister, Kelly. So we moved to Wichita, Kansas from Detroit, which is where I became a Kansas Jayhawks basketball fan. We lived there for several years. My dad worked with a church in Wichita. And again, all of our best friends were at church. All the vacations we took. 
the first time I went skiing in Colorado and left Kansas and thought I'd gone to Venus, right? Because I had no concept of Colorado. It was all through the church. It was beautiful. We loved it. I loved VBS. I loved youth group. We loved all of it. Um, As we got older, the Boston movement became a thing. Most of you probably know a little bit about Crossroads, Boston Movement, that whole part of the Restoration history. Now, on the Enneagram, my dad is a nine, which means he's a peacemaker. And he's a really good peacemaker, even though sometimes it costs him a lot personally. This is how much of a peacemaker he was. When the Boston Movement came to Wichita, um, I remember my dad saying he was going to the Boston Garden to hear, to be part of this huge conference and just... Like, all I knew was Larry Bird. I didn't understand, had anything to do with Jesus. Um, But he came back to Wichita from the big city of Boston. And he and the other minister on staff had a very good friendship. They were running partners together. But they disagreed. My dad thought that the Boston movement had elements that should be introduced into the church. The other minister thought it's a cult. And their friendship never suffered. It's really interesting. Their friendship never suffered for it, but they disagreed. So they went to the elders and said, we're trying to figure out how to grow this church. Um, We're struggling. Here's what we think. Here are the different views on this. Um, So, as we do in the Church of Christ, a church split happened. And this is how much of a peacemaker my dad is to this day. He was on staff for both churches for a year. Both He was part-time for the one and part-time for the other. And he split his weeks exactly even between the two churches. And then after a year, the new church, which was going more with the Boston movement, they came to him and they were like, hey, you kind of need to make a decision. <laughs> and my dad didn't want to disappoint either side, so he moved us back to Michigan. Um, and never spent any time in ministry after that. So he had preached for 12 years in Detroit, was on staff for a church for seven years in Kansas, and then never worked in ministry. And honestly, never had the same relationship with church again after that, because he was so uh, disappointed that people would split over. My dad's theology has always been, unless it's the resurrection, we're not splitting. Like, he paints with a big circle, right? So that shaped me because even though there was legalism and there was all kinds of stuff in the Church of Christ, I I never felt any of that because my dad protected us from all that. And my mom loved the church because the church rescued her from all of the abuse that she grew up in. So you are hard-pressed to find a woman who loves the local church more today than my mom because my mom knows what it was like to grow up in a church without the story of Jesus being preached. And I think sometimes in our postmodern culture, and we need to talk to our kids and our grandkids about this, is we only see the things we don't like about the church. Do two generations without it and tell me how it works out for you. That's what I tell people all the time. You're two generations removed from coming back and realizing, you know what? These are beautiful people doing beautiful things, doing beautiful work. So my mom had this deep affinity for the Church of Christ because they accepted her. They welcomed her. They treated her with respect. There was no abuse. It was only peace. So I'm giving you that context to say the three of us, my brother and my sister, we grew up in an environment where we were allowed to ask anything we wanted to. We could ask big questions. We never felt like we had to get it right. We never felt like we had to be perfect. Um, We were definitely held accountable. 
for our actions and all the different stuff that you go through in your teenage and your college years. But we always felt like we had a place to belong and we never felt like we had to perform for anybody. And I don't know what better gift you can give your kids than what my parents gave to us. So um, that's, I feel, such a responsibility with my boys. I don't even want to be better parents than my parents. I just want to be right where they were. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be better than they were. I know I'm not going to be a better dad to my kids than my dad was to me. My dad was amazing for my brother and I. I just don't want to, I don't want to regress. <laughs> I don't want to take a step back. So we moved back to Michigan, um, and I heard all the Dorothy Toto jokes for the first time in my life, and I didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> took, took a couple years to get the Wizard of Oz, Oz jokes. Um, but then uh, pretty quickly, that's when sports became uh, the respite for my brother and I. My brother was a great golfer, tennis player. That His nickname was Country Club. He still doesn't like that to this day. But <laughs> I told him he should have picked different sports, right? Um, Basketball kind of became my safe place, uh, played AAU, played all over the city. and So growing up in that church environment, um, my parents decided to drive 40 minutes one way to be a part of the Otter Creek Church of that area, the Rochester Church of Christ. Um, and it was known for grace, it was known for serving the poor, it was no, known for actually working with the Baptist Church, not against the Baptist Church. But we lived on the other side of Detroit. Detroit's a big right, metro area. So we drove 40 to 45 minutes one way. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and my parents made us sing in a choir, a Church of Christ a cappella choir. That meant chorus. Sorry, that's a Baptist dog choir. We still had to have our thing, right? And... Uh, so that meant Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoons, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, and somehow still, never bitter. A little bit when the NFC Championship game would be played at like 5 o'clock and it's the 49ers and the Cowboys and you're like, I have to go to rehearsal. I know all these songs. Like, Can I watch Steve Young try and win this game against Troy Aikman? No, you're going to the chorus. Um, and so I, I, had the, I, I would describe it as an interesting dichotomy between this church life, which I would say was super healthy. I'm still dear friends with several of those people I grew up with. And then I grew up in this kind of jungle of East Detroit public school system. So I had this another dichotomy, not just between my two sides of the family, but I went to this public high school, which was super diverse, huge high school, um, kind of cutthroat, super competitive, lots of different ethnicities, nationalities represented because of the strong military presence there. Um, and then my church, suburban white Church of Christ. And I think a lot of my high school uh, was just trying to figure out, like a lot of us, okay, who am I going to be? Because there's kind of church me, and then there's school me, and how do you slowly integrate? And that season of my life, I'm like a lot of you probably, um, I just had a great minister. His name is Mark Brackney. He works in East Tennessee now at the, in a church in Knoxville. But he was the Jesus presence. Besides my dad, he was the presence of Jesus in my life, and he went to my high school basketball games. He was my youth minister. He asked me hard questions. Um, he would call me randomly at home just to check on me. And, and I just, I always felt loved and admired by him. So um, 
the time came, high school, to make college decisions. My twin brother and I had shared a room our entire growing up, a little 8 by 10 room, bunk beds. Imagine my sophomore year of high school, I'm 6'4", I'm still sleeping on a bunk bed with my twin brother right below me. Um, so he chose to go to Oklahoma Christian University to play tennis. It was the best decision he ever made um, because he just blossomed. He loves that school. He's still super loyal to Oklahoma Christian. I chose to stay in Michigan. I went to Rochester College, which is now Rochester University. Um, so I went from this huge public high school to this tiny Church of Christ College. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened for me because I was held accountable. I'd never been taught the Bible like I'd been taught the Bible at Rochester College. I had a teacher named David Fleer who now works at Lipscomb. He's probably the best Bible teacher I've ever been around in my life. He taught me the prophets. He taught me the book of Genesis. He taught me the Psalms. Um, and then my coach that I played for in college at that time was also a, a minister in the Church of Christ. So he preached for a little church way out in the country called Lake Orion Church. And if you wanted playing time, you had to impress him. So guess where I started going to church? <laughs> I'm no dummy, right? I don't want to be the eighth man. I want to play. Um, so I started going to church out there with some of, some of the other guys on the team. And he, he became just like my guy. He became my mentor to this day. I know I can call him anytime, talk about anything I want to. He helped do my wedding. His youngest son was one of my best friends. We lived together. Um, and so that relationship showed me that you could be a Jesus person, preach, and be involved in sports and influence people's lives. And that, so that solidified for me because I just saw my dad get disillusioned. Um, so I needed to see another picture of someone who could do it and, and endure. So that led to a lot of wrestling, a lot of questions. Um, and the other part of my story uh, that kind of leads us to Otter Creek is uh, one of the big disappointments in my family is that I was a very poor student. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear me say that, but let me just tell you the best thing that happened to me is that there are eligibility requirements, even in East Detroit Public High Schools, and the eligibility requirement my junior and senior year was a 2.6 GPA. I graduated with a 2.65. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but it's true. I mean, I, just, I was a very poor student. I always tested well which was very frustrating for my parents. Um, I even, in middle school, again, just part of my story, there was a, a gift, an honors gifted class of 10 students in our whole school, and I was in it. And I was by far the worst student in there in terms of actual grades. And I'll never forget the smartest kid in our grade, Stephen Hobeck, who went on to become an MD and was valedictorian. He told me, he said, you know, some of, some of us are wondering how you got put in here. This was seventh grade. <laughs> uh, and I said, I wondered the same thing. <laughs> and he said to me, as it, uh, this is how I remember it. So I know, the, I know the message is true. I don't remember exactly. He said, I think they put you in here to see if they put you with really smart people, if that would raise the bar. <laughs> like I was a social experiment. <laughs> Nice. Looking back, I know now that I tested just as high as all of them did in aptitude tests, especially with English, um, but I just never performed. So what changed for me in college is that I became embarrassed about having that GPA. 
Uh, and the second thing is my dad said, if you bring home those grades in college like you did in high school, you'll be living in the basement. And nothing motivates an 18-year-old boy like not wanting to live in his parents' basement, right? <laughs> like, I, did, I wanted no part of that. So I started to take school seriously um, from that point on. In fact, I felt like I had skated through high school so much and I had wasted a really good high school public education that I felt like I had to make up for it. So I kind of became a little bit of a recluse and I would read all the time and I wouldn't go to parties with friends because I felt this angst of I've got to make up for all this. So by the time I got to my junior and senior year of college, my favorite classes were theology, uh, civil rights history, anything to do with American history, civil war, I'm in. Still to this day, I'm a sucker for anything that's World War II or civil war. I know some of you probably feel that way. And what happened for me in my brain is that my, my brain finally caught up with my heart. We all know that boys develop slower than girls, right? It's just take a five-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. They are not the same species. <laughs> take a 20-year-old girl and a 20-year-old boy. They're not the same species. So I think what happened is my brain finally was starting to catch up with my heart, and I realized Christianity can do amazing things in the world to help change people. Because I always thought about the church as great, but it's like it's kind of its own little insular thing. But when I got to college, I realized that most of the people who changed things in American culture were devout Jesus people. Or Jews. So, you know, Jesus is actual people. Um, and so that helped kind of reframe the role of the church, the role of a minister, what a church can do in the world, how we can be uh, uh, agents of change for the good, for the kingdom. And um, so this is where Kara enters the story. I'm sorry I'm taking longer than I thought I would. but um, So Kara's dad came to be the senior minister for the church that I grew up in. So I grew up in this church when we moved back from Kansas that we drove 40 minutes. So this church was near, the right next to Rochester's campus. And so they asked me one semester to be a campus intern. And I said, yes. Um, that decision led to me working out of the sound room. That's how far I was on the totem pole. They put an office for me in the sound room. <laughs> right next to the sound booth. I didn't have a computer or anything. Um, and Kara was a student at Lipscomb, and she had come back to Michigan. She'd never lived there prior to that. Um, she came back to visit her parents on fall break. She walked into the church lobby. The sound room had a window where you could see anybody coming into the... And I called Karen Owen, who was the office manager, still is the office manager at that time, and I said, Miss Karen. And she said, Nope. <laughs> And I said, Miss Karen, she's like, I know why you're calling. And I said, Miss Karen had known me since I was a little boy, since we had moved back from Kansas, right? And she said, I'm not telling you who that is. And so I said, okay, Miss Karen, um, if I ask you questions, will you answer like, and she said, okay. And I said, who is the girl that just walked in? She said, that's not the kind of question you say you're in. And I said, is she related to anyone on staff? So like, why would she be just walking through the church in the middle of the week? A whole series of conversations bribing the office staff. I learned that she was the daughter of the senior minister. Now, if you've ever met Cara's dad, 
you would not think it's genetically possible that Kara could come from Patrick Mead. It's just like, seriously, Kara's tall, beautiful, like elegant. Then you meet Kara's mom and you realize the genetics of her mom won out over the genetics of her dad. Right? So then I had another problem though. Uh, Patrick is an avid gun collector. He's a lifelong NRA member. I basically grew up Amish. I mean, my whole family's committed to nonviolence. We've never had a gun ever in our house. Like we. So now the girl that I want to ask on a date, who I find out has never dated anyone before, is the only daughter, the eldest daughter of a preacher who's a lifelong NRA member, at that time, as God is my witness, carried a Glock on him seven days a week. He doesn't anymore because we talked him out of it. At that time, I'm serious. At, I am not even trying to be funny right now. At that time, my father-in-law would preach with a Glock right here. Talk about Sons of Thunder. Like, <laughs> take your baptism seriously, dude. Um, so I went to him. Uh, I'll, I'll, I can picture his office. I was 22 years old. Um, I went to him. The most, it was like approaching Oz. And I went to him. I was so nervous. But I knew I had to ask, ask him before I could ask her on a date. He's the preacher. He's my boss. I report to him. He only has one daughter. She's never been on a date. It took me like six weeks of reconnaissance to get up the courage right? to put all this together. And he responded, oh, you can ask her, but I don't think she'll say yes. Um, which he was right. It took me almost five months to get her to say yes. Um, she was at Lipscomb. I was here. We traded correspondence through uh, Yahoo Mail. Thank God for Yahoo email, which had just taken off in the early 2000s, right? Um, so, obviously, there's longer versions to this, but we spent a year in Abilene engaged. I was coaching basketball, working in my Master of Divinity. It became very clear that that was not the path for us, plus she hated Abilene. She wanted to be back in Nashville. We moved back to Nashville. I worked uh, for a preacher you may have heard of named Rubel Shelley for a year. <laughs> Three months into working for Rubel Shelley, he, he comes to me and says, I'm going to retire this summer. So I got to watch that church go through that transition, which was a really hard but necessary transition as a 24-year-old. Uh, I learned more about ministry in nine months of working with Rubel Shelley than I did my entire life leading up to that. The first time I met Rubel Shelley, um, I don't know if they still do this, but there's a house in front of the Woodmont Hills building if you ever drive past there, big white house. Rubel's office was in the top of that house. The first time I met him, we did these Monday mentoring sessions, and uh, he was sitting on a park bench with an older African-American woman. And as I was walking up, he didn't know me, but I knew him. And he said, just go up, and I'll be up there in a second. And it turns out he delivered the news to that woman that she was HIV positive. And when I walked up on the hill, I was witnessing her find out for the first time that she had HIV. But the clinic that she had been tested at, had a relationship with Rubel, and it was Rubel's job. That woman didn't know Rubel at all. Um, so people think about Rubel Shelley as Vanderbilt PhD, 25 books or whatever. That's not Rubel Shelley. Rubel Shelley is the guy who was on the park bench with that woman. And that had a profound impact on me 
watching how he loved people, how he served people. And, I mean, he's ornery as the day is long. He's a cantankerous, and you can tell him I said that. But he loves people well. Especially, he's the kind of person that when you're in your worst moment, that's who you want on your side. Like, you don't go to, like, okay, here's the example I give you. You don't go to Ruble and say, hey, Ruble, I live in a $700,000 house, but I really think God wants me to buy this $2 million house. What do you think I should do? Ruble is not the guy to go and talk to. He's not going to be patient with you. He's not going to say, let's seek the Lord's heart on this. Like, he's not going to do that. But if you find out that your daughter's going through a divorce, you find out you have HIV, if you find out you have cancer, he's the guy that you want on your side. And that's what I realized People thought that he built that church through his intellect. He didn't. He built that church because he created a culture where people were accepted wherever they came from, um, whatever their story was. And at that time in the Church of Christ, there weren't many churches doing that, obviously. So I saw that in Rubel, um, finished my Master of Divinity. Carr and I got married that year. We moved back to Michigan. I worked for five years in the church that I grew up in. I quick, quickly realized this is not going to work. All of these women changed my diaper. They don't care what I think about racial justice. <laughs> I'm serious. These women re remember when I was 17 years old and fell asleep on the back pew and I had a giant hoop earring in my ear for, for all of high school. They remember this punk kid who now is on the ministry staff. Like, no, this does not work. Um, so about that time, Carr and I were thinking about going to Indianapolis. We were thinking about going to Dallas. Um, and I got a call from a guy named Phil Gibbs, who I had never met before. And that started a long, very deep friendship and a love that I have for him to this day. And uh, I, I, I say this, and you can decide whether you believe that I believe what I'm about to say. But besides being Kara's husband and besides being a dad, the greatest joy of my life has been being the preacher for this church. The greatest joy. Now, there have been some really hard stretches the last 13 years, two, two hard stretches in particular, um, which one of my friends said, if you're 11 for 13, that's pretty good. If you've only had two hard years, you're, that's a pretty good batting average. Um, but from the very first day that we moved here, and Lucas was two months old, which is crazy to think about, um, we've just felt like y'all wanted us to be here. And I know I've hacked off some of you. I know I've said things that I'm not even sure I agree with anymore. <laughs> I was like, some of you still remember stuff I said eight years ago? Number one, I don't remember saying it. I don't even, I don't even like that guy eight years ago. <laughs> uh, but you've been very gracious to us. Uh, this church has loved our kids really well. Um, I've got lots of friends who are pastors, and I hear some of their stories. I'm not even sure that my kids put together sometimes that I'm the preacher. I mean, I mean this seriously. No one's ever said anything to them. No one's ever been like, well, your dad says this. or you're... Um, They just learned what the Church of Christ was this summer. They had no idea what the... I'm like, am I educating my children on anything? <laughs> Finn, my middle, was like, why, why does our sign say Church of Christ? And I was like, let's talk about this. Let's get into this. So being here for us has been um, a great joy. I can say this with, with total purity of heart. I've never wanted to be in another church since I've been here. We've had a number of churches who have said, would you be interested in our search process? Uh, we've never felt like 
God has done anything but said, this is where you're supposed to be. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everyone here has ever felt that about us, and, and certainly there have been people who I've frustrated a great deal. Um, but it is an amazing, amazing place to be when you get up every day and you genuinely love where you work. And I wish that for everybody. Every, no matter what your calling is, what your vocation is, if you get to love what you do and who you do it with, you cannot put a dollar sign on that. And I love our ministry staff. I love our elders. I love working with this church. And, um, you know, it, as long as I don't wash any more feet and jeopardize my job security, my message is you guys are stuck with me. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I have zero desire to be anywhere else. I love being here. It's been so fulfilling, so rewarding, incredibly challenging, especially the last couple of years. Um, but that's a very short version of kind of my journey. So thoughts, questions? How long did I go? What did oh, your grandpa do when he went back when he went back to Michigan? He went back to being a respiratory therapist. Okay. And my mom, who had never worked outside of the home, <clears throat> Um, I got to give her a shout out because she was raising three kids. She was a real estate agent and went to night school to be a nurse. So, yeah, my, I come from, like a lot of you, I, I come from a family that's not afraid to work. My mom, I can still picture my mom falling asleep to her nursing flashcards. I'm a lazy boy. Like while we're watching NBA basketball being super shallow, you know, she's like trying to memorize <laughs> the circulatory system. So yeah, she. So he went back. They both uh, retired last year from Children's Hospital of Detroit, and uh, my mom was running a, a clinic. Would you tell us a little bit more about Kara? She's such yeah. a quiet person. We don't know much about her. Yeah. But sometimes you'll say she's more spiritual than I. Hundred percent. And tell me a little bit about her dad and her mom. I mean, yeah. a little bit about her. Yeah. So Kara is um, and. Major points to anybody who calls her Kara, not Kara. Because it's Kara, and you got it right. Because she instantly knows whether you know her or not. And those of you who have an unusual name, you know what that's like. So it's just the Scottish pronunciation. Um, she has some family lineage back to Scotland and Ireland. She was actually born in Glasgow, which I call the Detroit of Scotland. She does not think that's funny. Uh, her, dad, her dad was actually planting churches in uh, Glasgow and in Edinburgh, the, the truly European city in Scotland. And uh, so her full name is Cara Colleen. It's a very Scottish name. That's how I say it in my phone. I always say Cara Colleen. Um, and the way I describe Cara to people is she's very, very easy to misread because some people mistaken her quietness as weakness. And some, you guys know some of the strongest people you know. Doug Smith was like this. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Quiet, but do not ever underestimate strength. Right? That's right. And that's how Kara is. She's very quiet unless you're in her inner circle. You guys, that's what it's like when you raise a preacher's kid. You just become an observer of people. You're not impressed by anybody. <laughs> you're not. To this day, if Kara says that was a good sermon... I don't care what anybody else says because she is hard to impress. She's seen it all. She was raised in the church. She sees everybody's personalities. She sees all the church drama. Uh, she was raised by a person who has a very big personality. So she, she understands that church brings together all these people. Um, 
I would say uh, some other things about Cara that I'm most proud of and love about her is she's the funniest person I know. Really? And I'm also, I'm often the subject of that humor. Uh, which is why I've said, if I could ever get her to preach, we would never have a debate about female preachers at Otter Creek because you guys would be like, she's way better than him. Like, can we, can we have more of that? She's just incredibly insightful, incredibly intuitive. She reads people with a superpower. Like, she just knows, do I trust or not trust this person? When we first came to Nashville, now this isn't just an Otter Creek story, this is a Nashville, but there were certain people who really wanted us to kind of be in their life. And Cara just said, I, I don't have a good feeling about it. Within five years, it was very obvious. So she, she really has a kind of intuition for people. Um, I would say the other thing is she takes tremendous pride in being a mom. So she's incredibly detailed, uh, very thorough. Um, she's the most organized person that I know. She's a one on the Enneagram, which is a reformer, so you're always trying to make things better. Which is why she said she married me, because she just <laughs> saw this project. She does have that, that Scottish wit about her. Like, um, and I, the other thing about Cara is, Cara um, doesn't have, like some of you have hundreds of friends, that's not Cara. But the friends that she does have, she's extremely loyal to. She drops off their favorite Sonic drink. She gets them a gift card. She, you know what I like, so she picks her tribe, and then she's super loyal to that tribe. Um, and I admire that about her. She's never, she doesn't try to impress people. Um, and one of the gifts that Otter Creek gave to her is that um, she never felt like she had to be something here. So most of you don't even know her, right? And some people would say that's sad, and I would say that's just a woman who really knows her boundaries. <laughs> right? Yeah. She's not trying to save everybody, help everybody. But if you are in her inner circle, it is good to be in her inner circle because she takes care of her people. So she's, she's lovely, very, very lovely human. Miss Rebecca. Um, update us on your brother and sister, please. Okay. Uh, twin, yeah, twin brother Jason is an eight on the Enneagram, which means he's the boss. And he's been like that since day one. I've always worked for him. Somehow, he always made money off me. Like, got me to do his work. Uh, he's the strongest personality that I know. Uh, some of my friends are around me in other settings, and they'll say, Josh, you're extremely competitive, and I always think, you don't know my brother, because everything in my, I do in my life is compared to growing up as a twin. In fact, the best, uh, do all of you know, any of you know Terry Smith, was a longtime counselor at Woodmont Hills, mm -hmm. amazing human being. Mm -hmm. uh, Terry Smith said to me one time, he said, son, and he could say it in a way where it didn't feel belittling. He had his cowboy boots on, he said, son, you better not ever treat Kara like she's your twin brother. Because he had done our genograms, our life history maps, premarital counseling. And I was like, man, that's deep. Because you, you share a room with somebody your whole 18 years, that's the metrics by which you gauge everything, right? So we fought, we competed, we were sarcastic, practical jokes on each other all the time, right? 
And his message was, she's not him, and you're going to be miserable if you don't learn that lesson pretty quickly. So uh, Jason, um, now, he was in healthcare. In fact, his wife is from Regina, Saskatchewan. And when we first moved here, I was like, Jason, Nashville's one of the healthcare capitals of the U.S. He was like, I know. I was like, I promise we can, because I wanted him and his family so we could all kind of raise our kids together. So he went back to his wife. <laughs> Whole family's Canadian. They think hockey's the only sport ever invented. And he said to his wife, hey, would you, would you be open to uh, moving to Nashville? They're living in Michigan at the time. She's from Saskatchewan. Her response was, we already live in the South. Jason was like, it's not going to happen, bro. We're going to have to do family trips. So Jason is, uh, he's a Wall Street guy. He's an investment person. I don't even understand. He helps build, he helps make really rich people even richer. He's wealth management, stocks, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's, He's also recently become an entrepreneur. They own a couple of businesses and um, he and his wife are both very hard chargers, super achievers, um, really good people. They're in a Baptist church right now, which kind of it kind of gets under my skin <laughs> because I realized a couple of years ago that uh, I'm the only person in my family left in the Church of Christ, and I don't know why, but it kind of bothers me. Like, how am I the only one left? <laughs> my parents are in a community church. My sister's in a Baptist church. Uh, so we're holding it down for the Church of Christ. Uh, my sister, yeah, my sister is three years older than me, so she's forty. She'll turn forty-six next month. I'm forty-three. Um, my sister has a great story. She went through a horrible divorce, um, like truly horrible, one of the worst that I know of. Her husband at that time left her and her three-year-old for her best friend, and and he married her best friend. The day the divorce was finalized. Um, in this small little town in Arkansas. I actually went with my sister because my dad was afraid he would kill uh, the ex-brother-in-law if he went. So I got sent on the United Nations peacekeeping mission. (laughs) The day that my sister and her husband got divorced, and my sister would say she contributed. It was not all on him. But the day that that happened, he flew with her best friend to Las Vegas, and they got married the day after their divorce was finalized. So it was traumatic for my sister. They had a three-year-old girl. From the time my niece was three to the time she was 18, she only saw her father one time in person, uh, which created a huge set of anxiety issues that we're still still dealing with this today. Um, It's had a major effect on her. Uh, My sister put herself through college, because she dropped out of college when she got married. She put herself through school, became a teacher. She's now an elementary school teacher in Metro Detroit. The craziest thing is, this is God's sense of humor. She remarries her complete opposite. So she gets remarried to this guy who is the most straight-laced, at that time, lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He's now a full colonel a Michigan grad, 4.0. And my sister was, my sister, whatever that is, my sister's the opposite. She's life of the party, socialite, gets everyone together. She was always the prettiest girl in her grade. Like, people loved her. And how she ended up with this most straight-laced, lifelong career military guy 
who like never jokes, never smiles. He has a super tender heart. Um, but he was the best thing for her. Like he gave her structure and order in her life, and they just formed this great marriage. They have two kids from from her second marriage. Um, so I'm I'm particularly sensitive to divorce because of that situation. But she's doing great. Josh, I just, you don't have to take a long Yeah, it's okay. But uh, how has the last two hard years impacted you? Yeah. How has it changed you and has it affected your family? Has, has it? I think for our family, let me answer that first. Um, we were very lucky. So Lucas is a sixth grader, Finn is a fourth grader, and Ollie, who's my brother, He's the boss. He is exactly like my brother. Uh, he's a kindergartner. Rebecca's been around him because she teaches at Sunset. Um, for us, COVID was amazing because they didn't miss their friends. Lucas was in the fourth grade when it started. He's not texting his friends, thinking about his friends. All he knew is he got to be home every day and riding bikes all over Brentwood and Nolensville. Like just, they were going wherever they wanted, doing whatever they wanted to do. Our neighborhood's huge. So he has all his friends. So from a family perspective, COVID was an unbelievable gift, which sounds terrible to say. But a gift in a, it just restructured our whole way of being a family together, right? You know, have school drop-offs and early morning student council meetings and all of that. Um, here's what was hard about it on the church side. Um, and I want to say this very carefully. <laughs> You could not have predicted how certain people handled COVID. And it's, it takes a lot for me to judge people. Um, I just don't, whatever that gene is, I'm just very short on it. I can get there. It just takes me a long time. And some people really surprised me how they handled COVID. On both extremes. Let me be clear about that. Both extremes have been equally disappointing to me. <laughs> Uh, if anything, COVID socially and politically pushed me right dead to the middle as a moderate. Because I think both edges are absolutely crazy right now. It makes no sense to me intellectually or spiritually. Um, and I won't even get into the politics of the vaccine and the mask and all that. So I think what surprised me is I did not know some people as well as I thought I did. Conversely, some people... And nobody in this room. <laughs> but some people who I thought would be an absolute train wreck through COVID were the best people in our whole church. There are some people that I thought, oh, this kind of thing would just totally disrupt their family. They're going to complain. They're going to get met. And they were the pillar stalwarts of who got us through this. Um, so I think if anything, what I learned uh, through COVID is people will always surprise you. Um, and don't be surprised that people will always surprise you. But I would say overall, um, especially now, if you'd asked me this a year ago, the answer would have been a little different, but overall, all things considered, I'm super proud of how our church handled COVID. Some people could accuse us of being a little bit too cautious. Some people could accuse us of not being quite cautious enough. I don't think anybody could have accused us of being irresponsible. I think we really took seriously how to handle it, with the best information we had at the time that we had it, with how other churches were handling it. Um, 
I, you know, I lost some really good friends who are no longer part of Otter Creek because of how we handled it. And when I say really good friends, people that I was there in the hospital after their baby was born, people I've gone on vacation with, people I've traveled the world with, like, you know, just like you guys, I've, I've lost good friends too. Uh, and for me, it's never about church numbers or attendance. It's about people's stories. It's about their families. And that grieves me because there's nothing that we can say that can bring them back. There's nothing. Uh, we can say it. We can write letters. But um, so losing some people through COVID was, was very hurtful. Um, again, on both extremes. I've got the equal amount of stories of crazy on the left and crazy on the right. Because crazy is crazy. <laughs> and it's irrespective of political allegiance. It's irrational. It's irrational. Right? Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean to make light of mental health. You guys know what I'm trying to say. Just when people are so in their emotions, they won't have a real conversation. Yeah. But for the most part, I'm super proud of how we handled this. I mean, one of, the, one of the real moments when I knew we were coming back as a church is when you guys had that big meal in the gathering room. And that was the first time I had been around. I was walking through and helping with something, and I was like, this is the most amount of people I've been around in a long time at fight. church. We had to fight for that. Yeah, and I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm glad you did. You did the right thing. How's your basketball team doing? Thank you for it. Is Bailey here? No. <laughs> Bailey's not here. The reason I ask that is Bailey helped contribute one of the best. I've got an AAU basketball team um, that I'm slightly involved with. <laughs> uh, we've got 10 kids on our team. They're from all over the city. They're one of the best teams in the state. They're, they're incredible, um, which is why Bob's kind of chiding me a little bit. But uh, I probably care way too much about these sixth grade boys than I should. But man, is it funny. Is it so much fun and enjoyable watching sixth grade boys start to become little men? Because sixth grade, they're 12. You know, this summer, next year, they're going to turn 13. So they're not quite starting puberty yet, right? They're right at the front door. They're figuring out who they are. Uh, we just played in a big national tournament last week. We did pretty good. Um, but it's, I have to have things outside of Otter Creek that have nothing to do with Otter Creek. And that's one of the things that I love is this little AU team that I have. Yeah. So it's not it's a tax deductible nonprofit if anybody wants to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be happy to take your donations towards helping these young men achieve their dream. <laughs> yeah, but I, I absolutely love it. It's a it's a great thing. And Otter Creek's generous. We we use our gym a lot for practice, so it's it's a good thing. Thought about you yesterday in the game. Why would anybody want to be a college basketball fan? Like, it's just mental torture. I felt so bad for Tennessee yesterday. Truly. I, like, you have such a great year, and then you just have one bad eight-minute stretch, and it's over. So I, I, I hate it. I felt so bad for Memphis State. Oh, Memphis. It's inappropriate to say go blue at this point. Yeah, I'm not a Michigan fan. Just if anybody's wondering, for whatever reason, I'm not a University of Michigan fan. We do have one pagan among us. I'm not a Tennessee fan either, to be fair. I am a Kansas fan. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Wonderful.